I'll try to make it a shorter chutzpah. No, as long as you want, we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. You sure? You're going to make sure to go low down. and cover the sneaker. It says hold. That's okay. I don't want you to make sure. I have it. No, no, it's on. It's on? Yeah, now it's on. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Alhamdulillahi Fissarra. Alhamdulillahi Fiddarra. Alhamdulillahi Ala Kullihal. Wa Ashadu An La Ilaha Illa Allah. Wahdahu La Sharika Lah. Wahuwa Ala Kulli Shayin Qadir. وأشهد أن سيدنا وحبيبنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبده ورسوله وخاتم أنبيائه من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له Dear brothers and sisters Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in one of the ayahs actually this, uh, this particular ayah is phrased in two ways One of them is in Surah At-Tawbah, the other one is in Surah As-Saf. And the ayah says, يُرِيدُونَ لِيُطْفِئُوا نُورَ اللَّهِ بِأَفْوَاهِهِمْ وَيَأْبَ اللَّهُ إِلَّا أَنْ يُتِمَّ نُورَهُ وَلَوْ the those who are opposite the Muslims meaning those who are opposed to Allah and his Prophet those who reject the Quran and the Prophet they want to extinguish they want to put out Allah's light and Allah insists that He will complete, He will finish the process of extending His light even though the Kafirs are against it. They want to exting- extinguish Allah's light with what they with their mouths that's the literal translation of the ayah well what it means is with what they say with the media power that they have with distorting the facts with implanting lies within a soil of truth that's how they work. 
And we, the Muslims, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help us and guide us. Many of us, we just fall into this grand scheme of theirs. Many of us not knowing that we are contributing to their grand scheme. Now, brothers and sisters, you are aware, you know, that we, the Muslims, sometimes become the most difficult problem of our own selves. And much of that has to do with a lack of confidence in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If we had full confidence in, in Allah, Jalla Sha'nuhu, and we made a mistake, okay, we can be corrected. If we made a mistake in the past, we can't correct that mistake in the past. We can't go back centuries and say, we're going to do this another way. But what we can do is, we can identify that mistake and clear the air on the subject. <clears throat> and if we don't do that, this master plan of these common enemies is going to continue to move forward. Of course, at the end, they're not going to succeed. But in the meantime, we lose. We lose precious lives. We lose the bondage that we're supposed to have. And we create all these gaps in which the combined forces of our common enemies rush in. Now, <clears throat> there have been mistakes in the past. So what are you gonna, we're going to crucify ourselves because some of us made mistakes. None of us is perfect. Therefore, we are subject to making mistakes. Some of these mistakes may have been very serious and some of them were less than that. And one way of understanding the, the present is to thoroughly understand the past. And one way of getting a better understanding on what the future may be is to understand the past and the present. So, let me, let me because of the weather conditions, let me just throw out three examples of this. In the Arab context, I'm going to look at the Arabs, the Persians, and the Turks. <clears throat> in the history in which Arabs ruled, there was a serious deviation by the Umawis, Muawiyah, and the kings that followed away from the prophetic standards of ruling. Now you come, speak to an Arabic-speaking person, and open up the subject with the Islamic character, 
with the Islamic morals and values. No one is trying to get on anyone's nerves. We're just trying here to open up a subject and see if we can clear the air on the subject. And in the majority of cases, you will find individuals, some of them are supposed to be very well educated, who will put up an argument in defense of the Umawi deviation from the Islamic standards of ruling. They just can't get it straight. Up until this time, 14 centuries, they could have studied this, they could have reflected on this, they could have researched this, could have done a lot of things just to clear the end. What's going to happen? What, what does anyone get from defending a monarchy instead of it being a rule in accordance with the book of Allah and the precedent of the Prophet? May Allah's peace and blessings be upon him. But here we are, we're stuck. And this creates a gap in which troublemakers find fertile ground to move forward. Now we can move from the Arabs to the Persians. In one segment of their history, they had what is called Safawi rule. It began with another king of theirs. He could call himself whatever he wants. Just like Muawiyah is a king. Or similar to that. So this person found common grounds with the Portuguese. At the turn of the 16th century in the year of 1501 of course the western calendar they agreed the rulers in Persia and the rulers in Portugal the king there his name was Manuel they agreed that they were going to take over in whatever details that meant Mecca and Medina Now this is not going to appear, just like Muawiyah is not going to be appear as he really was in Arab history books, this is not going to appear in Persian history books neither. It was a mistake, just like the deviation that occurred originally, but no one wants to confess to it in that context and this gives rise to suspicion in today's world we're speaking what 1501 we're speaking over 500 400 years 400 500 over 500 years so today we have those who are the Islamic types I'm not talking about ignorant individuals I, I'm not even talking about the victims of the mass media I'm talking about those who are supposed to know better with their Islamic background and Islamic education they say look look at what the Safawis did then now we have a replay of that because what is happening in Iran now 
is the same thing all over again. In 2003, when the Iraqi regime was kicked out of existence by the American invasion and occupation of Iraq, there were closed-door contacts between Iran and the United States. You see how, and then that recurred in the years after that. And then it took secret meetings in Oman between the two sides until they finally capped their negotiations with this five plus one agreement, the JCPOA. These events that happen in our world today, they feed on our inability to wash ourselves from the negatives of the past. The same thing with the Ottomans, the Turks. It is to their credit that they withheld the hordes of the post-crusaders that had their sights fixed on colonizing the Islamic world. They held that back for centuries. But did they not have their mistakes? Did they not have their form of oppressive policies in certain areas of the Muslim world? A case in point here is the Armenian issue. You come and try to speak to the Turks. In our generation, in our time, we're not speaking here uh, with people who are inaccessible. And you just say to them, let's clear the air on this issue. And let us say, as it was, the officers who were in charge of military affairs who had their bouts with the Armenians, they were the graduates of European universities. They were secularized, they were westernized, and they were militarized by your schools. And so they did this to the Armenians. So we Muslims are the victims, just like the Armenians are the victims of what happened during that time. And they were not victims of our Islam. We are victims of the secular invasion of our minds that took hold in the young Turks who eventually disposed of Sultan Abdul Hamid. And remember the Turks call him, everyone calls him in that context if they are reading proper books, Sultan Abdul Hamid. The rulers in, in, in the Ottoman state were called sultans. They were not called kings. They were not called khalifas. Sultan Muhammad al-Fatih, Sultan Salim, Sultan Abdul Hamid, Sultan Abdul Majid. They were all sultans. But here we are. We in our own Islamic internal mind and internal context we don't even have our vocabulary right when it comes to things like that and then this is what we have brothers and sisters now in the past week we've had this man in the white house who has designated 
on armed forces in Iran as a terrorist organization. If this was a development that had nothing to do with our misperception of history, it's a simple thing to overcome. But here's where it gets complicated. <clears throat> a person with an, an, a very educated, a professor with an Islamic background, he was a member of a Kuwaiti delegation that went to the Islamic Republic back in the early 1990s. And he sat with the person who was the head of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Majlis at that time. He's currently the president of the Islamic Republic. And they began to speak, you know, chatting, whatever. And then the president tells this person who comes from the sectarian fault line, he says, according to what this person says, and there may have been some misunderstanding, but I don't think there was any misquote. He said that the head of the Foreign Affairs or Foreign Relations, however way it's worded, committee in the Majlis told him, you know, all of the sea line of the western part of the Persian Gulf, that belongs to us. How does a person like that with this type of frictional history that we haven't gotten rid of, the Arabs haven't got rid of their Umawi complex, the Persians haven't got rid of their Safawi complex, and even though it's irrelevant in this case, but to add to that, the Turks haven't got rid of their complex during the Ottoman times. We haven't got rid of them. And so all of this feeds into the friction that we are suffering from nowadays. Now, this is our internal. This is how... You know, no one wants to deal with these problems. We have Islamic centers in this area who are more or less supervised or administered by those who are supposed to be from an Islamic background. Whether they are Sunnis or Shiites, doesn't matter. They come from Islamic backgrounds. No one deals with these issues. It's left up to the troublemakers in the political circles to create more trouble and more problems out of these past issues that feed into the exacerbation of the current issues. So as we are fighting ourselves, more or less, either verbally or on the ground, as we are doing all of this, the larger plan is what? Who's looking at all of this and probably smoking their cigarettes or sipping their intoxicants? Who is it? Aren't they the Israelis, the Zionists, the imperialists who are looking at all of this? As all of this is going on, they're not sleeping. What are they doing? Let's give you an example. They are looking at... This is, they're obsessed with this. They are looking at any of these, whether they are Arabs or Persians or Turks. Are they trying to build a nuclear capability? This is their bottom line. So, 
in the Arab context and in the Persian context, it doesn't seem like in the Turkish context there is that serious pursuit, as far as we can tell, obtaining nuclear capabilities. But in the Arab countries and in Iran, there is a serious, there has been and continues to be, a serious policy of obtaining nuclear capability. And it goes back to Egypt. You know, Egypt, look at where Egypt is today and where Japan is today. Just three generations ago, Japan used to send its students to study in Egypt. Three generations ago. Anyways, now, Egypt thought about, in the 1950s, it thought about beginning to establish a nuclear capacity. And this Mossad was, was established three years after the colonization of Palestine in 1948. In 1951, Mossad came into existence. And they had their eyes fix, fixated on any Egyptians who may be studying nuclear physics or whatever the discipline was in that time. And they assassinated Egyptian scientists who, if they were given the opportunity and the wherewithal, could have developed a nuclear capacity in that country. Let me tell you the names of the Egyptian scientists who were assassinated by Mossad. Dr. Samira Musa, Dr. Yahya al-Mishad, Dr. Sayyid Budair and Samir Majid, Dr. Sa all of these were assassinated. And you probably, because we're supposed to not think, we're supposed to just be put to sleep on Fridays. You probably haven't heard these names. That's how far they have gone into our psychology and minds. We turned to Iraq in 2003 when the imperialist, Zionist, Arab reactionary combined effort against Iraq occurred. Now we're not here trying to defend the Ba'athis and Saddam Hussein and we know and I think we've established much of a record about their atrocities, about their misrule, about their discrimination, and every other thing that goes with that. So, you think the Israelis are absent-minded? They don't know what's happening in Iraq? Once again, they went immediately after the two, 2003 invasion of Iraq, they went after the scientists in that country who are capable, if just they had the wherewithal of enhancing a nuclear, let's call it a peaceful nuclear program. And the Mossad in Kuwait gave the American military the information of the names, the addresses, the whereabouts, the particulars of all of these scientists in Iraq 
who were in the hundreds. Not talking about a few here. And the Americans went in there with orders from Mossad, just like the Israelis. They have so much influence. And this is one of the areas there where it plays out. They went to all of these scientists in Iraq. Where are they going to go? The, the country was in a state of war. And there was about 380 or 90, close to 400 of them interspersed all over Iraq. And they told them, you either come with us or it's the end of it. You're gone. We'll execute you. Seventy of them came to the United States. Does anyone know anything about them? Where are they? What are they doing? What happened? Nothing. Why? Because there's no mature Islamic public opinion to say what's going on here. These are a resource for the Iraqi people. Why are they here? What are they doing here? What happened to the other 310? They were executed in cold blood in their own, most of them in their own homes in Iraq. These could have been a step forward for the population of Iraq and the populations of that general area if they were put on the right course. And no one speaks about this. This information is supposed to be buried somewhere. Why? Islamic centers around here. And then, seven, eight, nine years ago, whenever it was, Mossad turned its attention inside of Iran. Who are the nuclear scientists in this society? And you think they don't have a pro-Zionist contingent inside of Iran? Whether they are Jews or Muslims or Christians, it doesn't matter to them. As long as whoever they are work for the Mossad or work for the CIA or work for whoever they work for. And the result of that was the assassination of four scientists in Tehran itself. I think all of them were professors at universities there. So this is what they are after. If our minds cannot expand to bring this information within our understanding of Allah's ayahs and of the Prophet's code of honor, if we can't do that, we're just going to continue. We're going to continue the way we have been. Now, I want to end this khutbah, even though the, the weather seems to be permitting, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving us a weather break here. I want to, now that I have the names of these four Iraqi, uh, excuse me, four scientists in the Islamic Republic of Iran, Mustafa Roshan, Hassan Muqaddam, Mas'ud Muhammadi and Majid Shahriyari. Almost faint names. 
There are policies. Alhamdulillah, the Islamic Republic is sophisticated. It's not a simple regime like the other ones in the area. They have different layers of thinkers. Unfortunately, they also have some types, the wrong type of thinkers. And maybe I can remind you, several years ago, when these negotiations between the United States and Iran were being conducted, that were, were capped in 2015 with the JCPOA, there was a voice inside of the Islamic Republic that said Hezbollah should become a political party. Why is Hezbollah a military force? It can function very well as a political party and it can trim away all of its military might. Just do away with that. That is a voice inside of the Islamic, alhamdulillah, that that voice hasn't seen the light of day so far, but it hasn't gone away. It's, it's still there, and it's still trying to get away with its politics and its pursued policies. Now, to end this khutbah, as I said, you know, there's much misunderstanding because our speakers on Fridays don't have the courage or don't have the knowledge or don't have any of them to begin to ask questions that will make you think. And I'm going to ask a question for you that probably will have you go back and reconsider some of the information that you have. When Al-Khalifa Umar ibn Al-Khattab when he went to Al-Quds, when the Quds was first liberated, it was Omar who was there. Al-Madina, when, when the Muslim ruler leaves Al-Madina, the Prophet left Al-Madina, he, he deputized someone to be in charge of Al-Madina. When Omar left, he went for three months. When he went to Al-Quds, who did he deputize to be in charge of Al-Madina? Does anyone know? You have your Islamic backgrounds, you have your Islamic information, you have your Islamic affiliations. Who was in charge of Al-Madina for three months? I'll give you the answer and you just go and dig up the putrid information that you may have inherited. Umar ibn al-Khattab deputized, assigned an Imam Ali to be the person who is responsible for, it's more or less, running the Islamic State because Umar now is in al-Quds. He doesn't have all the facilities to make the obvious decisions that were necessary in those days and times. Now, if there was an animosity, like some Shi'is and some Sunnis think, if there was an animosity between them, why would Omar tell Imam Ali, you become now in charge of Al-Madina? You go, dig into your history books. And then when you find a fanatic Sunni or a fanatic Shi'i, you present them with this fact. You say, explain this to me. They had disagreements? Yes. But w was there animosity? Were they enemies of themselves? No. If this fact cannot settle into a person's psychology and mind, 
welcome more disasters into the future. وَمَا كَانَ لِمُؤْمِنٍ وَلَا مُؤْمِنَةٍ إِذَا قَضَى اللَّهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَمْرًا أَنْ يَكُونَ لَهُمُ الْخِيَارَةُ مِنْ أَمْرِهِمْ أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم أدعوه سبحانه وأنتم على موقن وأنتم على يقين بالإجابة الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Brothers and sisters It's only natural that what is happening makes many of us upset you sort of become the targets of everyone who has any power and they pick on us especially these rulers in the Arabian Peninsula who are facilitating this hatred towards Muslims this Islamophobia in the world it's fueled by the fanatics and now they are trying to cover their fanaticism with liberalism there's a, an actor she has films etc Miss Khashab Al Khashab she was given a ring with the Prophet's name on it just this past week and she played roles in movies she didn't atone for what she did if she did that's another story she's still her past self with the provocative and lewd acts that she had in her movies and then the Saudis honor her by giving a ring, giving her a ring with the Prophet's name on it. See, they're trying to hide their fanaticism with their liberalism. And Muslims either don't know about this, because a news item like this is not going to circulate among them. Who's going who's to carry a news item like this? Your local newspaper? the major news services in the world ah. and then this Pompeo the uh, pro-evangelical Secretary of State he says if it can be proven that MBS gave the orders for the unsightly killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi then he should not be permitted to enter the United States oh really is that all he can live anywhere else in the world he wants without entering the United States and get away with his war crimes and crimes against humanity this past week the Saudi regime said that it foiled a terrorist act in the eastern part of, it, of the country and killed 
to terrorists. This is their wording. The United States now has officially, the Congress has endorsed Jean Abizaid, who was the head of the forces that went into Iraq in 2003, a person from Lebanese heritage who speaks Arabic now to become, look, he was in Iraq, a warrior, a killer, and now he's become the American ambassador in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia last week opened its consulate in Baghdad and it was given a green light to open another consulate in Najaf. What are they up to? Okay, they gave the Iraqis one billion dollars. They want more Iraqis to go to Mecca and Al Medina? Or is there some sinister plan behind all of this? What appears to be a positive development is Egypt has withdrawn from the Arabian NATO. Remember those countries that came together, they said, Saudi Arabia said it's going to combine the militaries against the Islamic Republic in Iran. Well, in the past few days, certain news sources say that Egypt decided to withdraw from that so-called alliance. Something very odd happened in the past week. You know, when we speak about crime in secular societies, ah, there's a lot of crime. But in Islamic societies, there's not a lot of crime. And this is the uh, disturbing thing that happened in the past week. Last Friday, Jumu'ah prayers, an unemployed person goes up to the imam in, the, in one of the messages in Cairo and stabs him in the back to death. That's weird. In the masjid? In Cairo? A place not known for crimes? For something like this to happen? In the same week, in the past few days, another thing happened in another masjid in the area of Al-Haram, the pyramid in Egypt. And this time the perpetrator, the person who killed the imam in that masjid, is a university professor, a 41-year-old university professor. This is a crime. He goes to the imam and says, could you recite for me, could you read uh, Ayat al-Kursi? Allahu la ilaha illa huwa al-hayyu al-qayyum la ta'fuduhu sinatu until the end of the ayah. This imam, a graduate from the Azhar, he reads, he recites Ayat al-Kursi and then Minutes later, this person goes up to him, the professor goes up to him and stabs him to death. What is this? These are disturbing developments in a society that is not known to be in a criminal slant. Morocco last week arrested two Israelis who were involved in forging official documents, passports and other government documents. 
Why doesn't this play out? What they're playing out right now, this rabid, pro-Zionist, racist media, what they are playing up, playing up is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's state uh, sentence, which is taken out of a broader presentation in which she said, someone did something on 9-11. And you have all of this. Now, what do you expect? Let's say, let's say for a moment, the President of the United States' daughter is a Muslimah. His son-in-law is a Muslim. His other son is a Muslim. His ambassador to Saudi Arabia, or if it happens in the future, a major Muslim country is a Muslim. The person who's in charge of the Middle East file for the U.S. government is a Muslim. Can anyone imagine something like that? Never. Never. But flip it the other way around. These individuals are Jews. And we're supposed to think everything is fine. So is anyone surprised if there is a halabalu about Congresswoman Ilhan Omar when she says something like that? Then the chief of police in the United Arab Emirates says that there should be a force of 6,000 paramilitary individuals who can go into Qatar and finish Qatar off. This is how they are thinking. I wonder where this person goes to Jumu'ah prayers. And I wonder these people who ascend the minbar on Friday, what are they telling? What are they saying when these types of individuals are attending Jumu'ah prayers and listening to the khutbahs? What type of khutbahs are they listening to? Then we have in this past week the resignation of two heads of state. One of them in Algeria, the other one in Sudan. This is sending alarm waves in the area, be not because of what's happening per se in Sudan and in Algeria, but because of the repercussions it may have on what may be the outcome of this in Egypt. Yes, Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria are calling a, a meeting Morocco, Egypt, and Tunisia are calling a meeting to discuss these potentially disruptive, in their minds, developments that are taking place. The average Muslim is thrilled to see that old guard move away, get out of the way, and let us have something we haven't had for 1,400 years, almost. And that is Islamic self-determination. And then another news item, you know, there's a low-intensity war taking place in Cameroon. The Israelis are involved in that low-intensity war. The Israelis have 220 
disguised companies that are selling weapons for us, whether we are in Africa or anywhere else, to aim our weapons against our own selves. The Israelis are the fourth largest exporter of weapons in the world before the United Kingdom. They export weapons more than Britain. You wouldn't know that. No one would feel that. These are war criminals. They are committing crimes daily and they want to commit more crimes. And they re-elected a new administration that is racist to its core. And the Palestinians now for over a year have been marching and moving and being killed. And we are supposed to be moral Muslims, right? But our morality can, cannot touch upon these subjects. Why? Who's defining for us our morality? Israelis selling weapons to South Sudan, to Rwanda, to Myanmar, to the Cameroon. Eh, nothing. We're supposed to make believe that all of this is fine. Let the world continue as it, it's been going. Six billion dollars. Last year the Israelis sold six billion dollars worth of arms. There are 300,000 Egyptians that are working in Qatar. If Qatar was to play nasty like its adversaries, and decided one day, well, let's expel the Egyptians from Qatar. Where are 300,000 Egyptians going to go? Is Saudi Arabia and the United Arabian Emirates, are they going to pick up the flag? Are they going to absorb these 300,000 Egyptians? 30 leaders of Palestinian organizations in this past week have gone on a hunger strike. Should something like that be dismissed and say, yeah, it doesn't concern us, I'm not a Palestinian, it doesn't concern me. Or someone else says, well, I'm not an Arab, it doesn't concern me. Or someone else says, I'm not a Muslim, it doesn't concern me. All of this is going to catch up. And eventually it will catch up. Let me end by saying one of the Syrian opposition figures, name is Kamal al-Labwani, he confessed, there's a recording of him confessing that the United States government was paying the Syrian opposition. And he also confessed that the leaders of the opposition were stealing this money. There you have it. Crooks. And we're not, as Muslims, we're not supposed to identify crooks and criminals. What type of Islam do we have pronounced on Fridays in these Islamic centers all around that cannot even address with impartiality and fairness our past and our current affairs? Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqa وارزقنا اتباعه وأرنا الباطل باطلا وارزقنا اجتنابه ولا تجعله ملتبسا علينا واجعلنا للمتقين إماما
ربنا إننا سمعنا مناديا ينادي للإيمان أن آمنوا بربكم فآمنا ربنا فاغفر لنا ذنوبنا وكفر عنا سيئاتنا وتوفنا مع الأبرار ربنا وآتنا ما وعدتنا على رسلك ولا تخزنا يوم القيامة إنك لا تخلف الميعاد ربنا صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد وبارك على محمد وآل محمد وصل على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم وبارك على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم في العالمين إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمركم أن تؤدوا الأمانات إلى أهلها وإذا حكمتم بين الناس أن تحكموا بالعدل إن الله نعم يعظكم به إن الله كان سميعا بصيرا ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمد رسول الله حي على الصلاة حي على الفلاح قد قامت الصلاة قد قامت الصلاة الله أكبر الله أكبر لا إله إلا الله الله أكبر